Leaking in the mitral valve of the heart may cause severe implications for our well-being. It's important to know the early symptoms of a leakage and learn how you can be proactive in addressing your heart health. We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Dan Meyer, Chief of Heart Transplantation and Mechanical Circulatory Support and a cardiac surgeon at Baylor University Medical Center. This is Heart Speak with Baylor Scott and White Heart and Vascular Hospital in Dallas and in Fort Worth. I'm Prakash Chandran. So first of all, Dr. Meyer, great to have you here today. Can you start by describing the main function of the mitral valve? So, you know, there's four main valves of the heart, and the mitral valve is on the left side. The left side is the main pumping chamber of the heart. And so uh, when the blood goes to the lungs to get oxygen and comes back to the heart, it goes into the left atrium and then down into the left ventricle where it gets pushed to the rest of the body. And so that mitral valve is between the left atrium and the left ventricle. And so when the heart beats and ejects the blood to the rest of your body, that's when that mitral valve closes. And the problem is everything is fine until that mitral valve is diseased and leaks. So then when the heart beats in a leaky mitral valve, the blood goes backwards to the lungs and the patients have these symptoms of shortness of breath and just difficulty um, walking for fatigue and a lot of different problems like that. So that's the issue with the mitral valve. What exactly causes leakage in the mitral valve in the first place? And are there different types of leakages? We look at like three main types. And the type that we deal with most often is what's called uh, degenerative mitral valve disease. It's when, as we all get older, the valve can start to stretch out and get floppy. There's two parts to the mitral valve, two leaflets, and when the heart beats, they touch each other, and that's how the valve closes. And there's these kind of strings or cords that attach to the valve and then in, in also attach to the heart. And so when those get stretched out, then, again, with age, uh, then when the heart beats, the the valves can't come together because everything's either stretched out or occasionally these cords can f- fracture and break, and then there's a lot of leaking. So the degenerative aspect is one reason. The valves can, your mitral valve can get infected. Not super common, but it can happen, and you can get what's called a perforation in the valve. And again, when the valve closes, when the heart ejects the blood and beats, then that hole lets all this blood go backwards. So that's another way we can have problems. And then in the less common is rheumatic heart disease, but we still see a lot of that. And that's where, um, like when you're a young child, you get rheumatic fever and that can affect the heart valves. And so that can also mean that the valve gets scarred down. And so those cords can get kind of scarred in. And so the leaflets can't what we call co-op, they can't touch each other. So when the heart beats and the valve is supposed to close, the leaflets, the two leaflets can't come together and the leads to leaking of the valve. I see. And is this normally uh, a genetic thing or is this caused by our diets? I know you said for that one disorder, specifically sometimes when you're young, you get a high fever that could uh, potentially cause it. But what are some of the reasons why we get leaky valves in the first place? Well, it's not typically genetic. That can happen. But most of it is just with this degenerative. It's just with age, the, the tissue gets um, weak and uh, then um, gets stretched out, and then that causes the issue. So it's not typically a genetic. It's more of a just wear and tear on the body. 
Got it. And you know, you talked about some of the symptoms earlier. Maybe cover them again and also talk about how one would know that they have mitral valve disease if they don't have any symptoms. What typically can happen is when, say, you go in for a physical and your physician says, hey, did you know you have a heart murmur? And so then the patient says, no, I feel fine. And then they start to think about it and they say, well, I guess I haven't been cutting the lawn anymore because I get kind of short of breath. So it's the symptoms are from no symptoms and you just have a murmur. And sometimes that murmur may stay there and not cause any problems that forever, but it's something that would have to be followed. Or you start to get symptoms like fatigue, which is really common uh, with mitral valve disease. Um, more significant symptoms are the shortness of breath with simple maneuvers, walking or going upstairs. And then finally, patients can get an irregular heartbeat, just uh, reflecting that the heart's kind of working harder and then it gets irritated and start to have a abnormal heartbeat. And if you discover that you do have a mitral valve disease, what are the different treatment options that are available? I mean, the first thing though is that often nothing needs to be done. And, and most commonly, this is not an, well, almost always it's not an emergency, especially with the degenerative type of diseases that we see a lot of uh, in the valve. So it's, it's usually something that over time, um, it's first managed medically. So your physician will give you some medicines that, that uh, help the valve not to repair itself, but so the valve doesn't have to work as hard. Um, so there are medicines that, that we use for that. And then uh, over time, you know, there could be, um, you know, as your symptoms get more severe, that's when we start to talk about uh, surgery. Okay. And so what percentage of people actually need to go through surgery? It, it sounds like uh, a very small set. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Although, you know, the ones that we see are being a surgeon. Those are the ones that we see. So, um, but in terms of people that have mitral valve disease, you know, probably the majority of them don't need anything, um, at least initially. But over time, the key is that when you have any intervention, like even if it's surgery or nowadays, a lot of these things can be done, you know, with catheters and not surgery. But whatever the issue is, the key for people to know is you want to stay on top of this because you don't want to let that heart muscle work so hard that it gets weak. Because all the risk of like for heart surgery, the risk comes in when the heart is weak. If, if your heart has normal, what we call function, the muscle is normal, your risk is it's never 0%, but it's close. So, but when your heart gets weak, that's when the risk of surgery goes up. So even though most people don't need anything done, they do need to be followed. So when, when they, their symptoms start to get worse, they can get referred for surgery. Okay, got it. And so for the people that do go in for surgery, can you talk a little bit about what the recovery process is like? What we like to do is to repair the valve, and that's the beauty of the mitral valve. It's one of the few valves that can be repaired. And so over the years, uh, a lot of people have refined the techniques. And so repairing the valves are key. And then how we repair it, if we use a standard incision, or nowadays a lot of our patients are done using what we call minimally invasive or robotic techniques. So there's a lot of ways to fix the valve, and that reflects how long you're in the hospital, basically. But usually most people, everyone's in the hospital like overnight in the intensive care unit, no matter how we do it. And then they usually, after the first day, go to a regular 
room where they're just monitored. So most of the time in the hospital, three or four days, basically, no matter how we do this. And what about the prep work leading up to the surgery itself? Is there anything that patients need to do beforehand? No, I mean, we we will have known their disease, the extent of their mitral valve disease by what's called an echocardiogram. And so that'll tell us basically exactly what we're going to do at the time of surgery. So we know we will be able to talk to the patient ahead of time saying almost for, you know, verbatim what steps we're going to do, how to repair that valve, if it's going to be a repair, or if we're going to replace it, we'll know that as well, usually by the preoperative echocardiogram. And sometimes based on their age, if they're over 40 or 45, they'll get what's called a cardiac catheterization. And that's where we look at their arteries of the heart because you don't want to have a valve surgery um, and go through all this and then two years later say, oh, I have chest pain. And they look and you have a little blockage that they have to do a bypass surgery. So we do, that's part of the kind of the preoperative evaluation. And then depending if they have other issues, if they have any breathing issues, sometimes we have to look at their lung function. But mostly it's just those uh, basic uh, cardiac studies. Let's say someone is listening to this and they're saying, you know, I I feel like I may have shortness of breath and some fatigue, and this is something that I I might want to consider following. What do you recommend people do to just start monitoring this, and when do you recommend they do it? Well, the key is, you know, working with your primary care physician and your if you have a cardiologist so you can be monitored closely because, again, what you don't want to do is let that heart get weak. And it takes a while, so it's not that it's going to happen overnight, but that's what you don't want to have because you don't want to go into any procedure that you could have been super low risk and have it now be a bigger issue. So that's the one thing is that close follow-up with uh, your primary care and your cardiologist. And then when it is time to have surgery or consider surgery, you know, find a place um, that does a lot of these procedures because you want to, when you talk to your surgeon, you want to make sure that they have done a lot of mitral valve surgery and they should be able to tell you, you know, within 95% accuracy if it's a valve that they're going to repair or replace. Because for at least for the degenerative type of valve disease, you really these days want to have a repair. And so you want to go to a place that has the experience, the expertise, and the team that can offer that. And that's what we do at Baylor. That's really good advice. Um, just as we close here, you know, after seeing so many different uh, patients and uh, performing so many different types of surgeries, is there one piece of advice that you'd like to share with our listeners that you wish that they knew before they came to see you? Do your research. Make sure you're comfortable with the facility and your surgical team by, you know, by speaking with your surgeon and um, just be in the right frame of mind going into the surgery because it's, no matter what we do, it's, it's a lot for the patient afterwards. They have to be mentally prepared to work hard afterwards in, in cardiac rehab, walking, getting out of bed the day, sometimes the day of surgery. So I think just being prepared mentally for feeling better, but it's a little bit of a a trek to get there. Well, Dr. Meyer, I truly appreciate your time today. This has been hugely insightful, and I really appreciate it. That's Dr. Dan Meyer, Chief of Heart Transplantation and Mechanical Circulatory Support and a cardiac surgeon at Baylor University Medical Center. Thanks for checking out this episode of HeartSpeak. To find a cardiac surgeon on the medical staff at Baylor Scott and White Heart and Vascular Hospital, Dallas and Baylor University Medical Center, call 844-BSWDOCS. Once again, that's 844 844- 
BSW Docs and ask for a cardiac surgeon with expertise in mitral valve surgery. To learn more about the cardiac surgery program, visit BaylorHeartHospital.com or download the Baylor Heart Center app on your Apple device. If you found this podcast helpful, please share it on your social channels and be sure to check out the entire podcast library for topics of interest to you. Thanks and we'll talk next time. Baylor Scott & White Heart and Vascular Hospital, Dallas. Joint ownership with physicians.